Do your ears need exercising? Tune in to Resonance 104.4 FM for an oral workout or on the web on resonancefm.com. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Paperweight Radio, Explorations in Visual and Material Culture with me, your host, Juliet Christensen, on Resonance 104.4 FM. In this week's walk along the frontiers of research into images and objects, our theme is plastic. And we begin our story in the 1860s in America with the rapid expansion of the game of billiards. At the time, it was ivory that was used to make the balls because it was a material that was able to endure repeated high-speed collisions with other objects without becoming cracked or dented. However, ivory was expensive. And because ivory was also used for all manner of Victorian things, from piano keys to combs, there were concerns, then, as there are now, about the possible extinction of the elephant. As part of these material problems in 1863, a billiards supplier, Phelan and Colenda, offered a $10,000 prize in the New York Times to anyone who could make them a new material to replace ivory. Taking up the challenge was a young newspaper printer, John Leslie Hyatt, who, in a shack behind his home, began experimenting with variations of nitric acid and cotton, so-called gun cotton. Six years later, Hyatt struck gold, so to speak, producing a white, malleable material that was as hard as horn, water and oil resistant, that could be moulded or pressed, could be cut or sawed. Created from the cellulose in the cotton, Hyatt's brother, Isaiah, named it celluloid. And although Hyatt never collected the $10,000 reward, his work laid the foundations for the plastics industry, realising the birth of modern photography and film with celluloid film and leading to the production of other plastics such as Bakelite, nylon, silicon and vinyl, materials without which it would be impossible to conjure up our modern world. So today, to discuss how plastic has been critical in shaping visual and material culture, are the material scientist Paul Tangney, the art historian Matt Lodder talking about silicon plastic surgery and art practice, the sociologists Ian Woodward and Dominic Bartmansky on vinyl in the digital age, and on a more metaphorical note, the communications scholar Emily Chivers-Joachim on skateboard culture and how it shapes and moulds teenage boys' identities. As ever, don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter through at Paperweight, Paperweight News and we use the hashtag Paperweight Radio. So today to open the show we welcome our very first scientist. This is Paul Tagney, he's a senior lecturer in the Department of Materials at the Faculty of Engineering, Imperial College London and his research covers physics, material sciences, chemistry and related fields where he works to develop and apply computational techniques to study the electronic structure and temperature properties of both bulk and nano structured materials and devices. Have I got that right, Paul? Roughly speaking, yeah, that's that's right. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on Paperweight today. I'm hugely appreciative of you being here as our first scientist, and I'm going to make you scientist in residence for our, for our second series, <laughs> okay. I think. Um, so to start the question off, you don't work on plastics itself, but you are a material scientist and therefore can talk to notions around plasticity in material science. So when you talk about plasticity as a material scientist, what is it that you mean? So when I talk about plasticity, what I mean is something that um, a more sort of abstract 
concept uh, than than the the plastics we have in our laptops and our and our plastic bags. Um, it, but it's it's a property of materials by which they they deform permanently in response to sort of being having forces applied to them. So so things like um, you know if you take the rings off beer cans, right? The the plastic rings off beer cans, you can pull that apart, and if you stretch it, it'll stay stretched, right? It's a, so that's the yeah. plastic property. Um, and to to understand what plasticity is, you should really think of it, compare it to to the alternative, which is, for example, elasticity. So elasticity, you take an elastic band, you stretch it, and you let go, and it's gonna gonna spring back, right, and yes. to to the way it was. So it doesn't, it's not permanently deformed. Um, another thing that could happen is I take a piece of wood. Right, and I try and bend that. It's not going to plastically deform; it'll snap. Right, so that's fracture. Okay, so plasticity is should should be thought of in as as not being those things, not being elasticity, not being uh, fracture, but being being a, a permanent deformation uh, that doesn't break something. But there's a, there's an interesting case maybe with a paperclip, which if you unfold a paperclip, sometimes you can get it to ping back if you don't kind of unfold it far, far enough but other times it will be permanently deformed so there's a point at which materials are plastic and are elastic is that correct that's right i'm so being very hesitant here in my terminology <laughs> that's absolutely right so lots of materials can can be uh can exhibit plasticity and lots of and the materials that do the paperclip is a really good example if you a lot of materials when you first deform them or apply a force to them, they're elastic. And they're elastic until you reach a certain point. So if I if I take the paper clip and I just sort of pull it apart a little bit, it's going to spring back, right? So that's that's the elasticity, right? But if I pull it apart too much, it'll stay bent, okay? So the metal is uh, elastic for small deformations, for small forces applied. But for if the deformation is, or if the force applied is too large, it becomes plastic. So many materials go from being elastic to plas- to being plastic, and then if I pull the, the paper clip too hard, you know, even beyond its plastic regime, it'll break. Are these things that you work when you're doing kind of computational modeling? Because you're a theoretical rather than an experimental scientist. So you're modeling things all the time. Um, and in terms of talking about... Uh, uh, what can I say? In terms of uh, working out how your the theories that you're working with and to actually enact themselves in the world, do you model things like plasticity and elasticity when you're talking about materials? Um, so people do. <laughs> <laughs> I I can model elasticity. Yeah. I can't personally. I because I, I work with materials. I, I, I model materials at the level of atoms and electrons at a very, very sort of small length scale. Um, I, don't, I don't model plasticity because plasticity is something that happens on a, on a, on a bigger length scale. Okay. Um, but elasticity, because elasticity is really about, um, well, let's start with, with what I mean, the properties of materials come from their composition. You know how, what they're they're made of, and how how you know what atoms 
are there and how those atoms are arranged. And if you take a, a metal, metals are usually crystalline, so that means that they're, they're arranged in an ordered way. And if I apply a force to it, then I don't change the arrangement. I just sort of, I just sort of squeeze them, them a little bit. So I bring the, the atoms closer together, or I, if I pull it, I bring the atoms further apart. Right Now, as soon as I've stopped applying the force, they're going to spring back because they, they have a certain distance that they want to be apart. And so that's why, that's elasticity. They have a certain attraction to one another where they want to well, come yes. back to one another. Yeah, so, so all atoms, they sort of, they attract one another when they're very far apart and they repel when they're very close together and there's a sweet spot and that's where uh, they want to be, you know, at the, at the just where, where, the, where the attractive forces and the, and the repulsion are, are sort of balanced. Um, and so if you stretch them, it's like, just like a spring, they, they, they'll spring back. Okay, so that's elasticity. But with, in a plastic material, what you do is you sort of, uh, on a much larger length scale, you kind of, you bend, um, if I bend an iron bar, and I'm not capable of doing so, but let's suppose I was, then, then the, um, there would be a deformation on a really, really huge length scale. And we're talking like uh, billions of billions of atoms would all have to rearrange. And if those atoms can sort of rearrange fast enough so that they can adapt the, to the new shape that I'm, I'm pushing the system into. But still maintain that equilibrium between repulsion and attraction. Yeah, so they still maintain their local structure. They're still They still have the same sort of local arrangement so they're all happy they all they, they have the same kind of um, size, uh, length bonds but they've just kind of all the atoms have kind of scurried around to, to rearrange into the new shape um, that's plastic that's plasticity but in other materials because the atoms can't scurry fast enough the, the, it will just break so that's what happen, happens when you take iron and you put um, you put carbon into it to make steel Steel is much more brittle. It's stronger, but it's more brittle. So if I try and, if I was Superman and I tried to, and I took my, my a steel bar and I tried to bend it, it would it, would, it wouldn't bend. It would just, the 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 carbon stops the atoms from scurrying around to to adopt the crystal structure in the new shape, and so it'll just break. It'll fracture. One really interesting application to of the notion of plasticity is is it's often used colloquially and I'm going to skip sciences here, so do come with me, um, into neuroscience when we talk about the brain as being plastic and there is a notion of plasticity. Again, that's meant in a very particular sense. Do you want to talk briefly about... Sure. I, yeah, I'll tell you what I've Googled. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Honesty there from the scientist. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it means the same thing. So... Um, but it's interesting that the material science is being used to explain how the brain or the human brain works, you know, because often we talk about um, the latest kind of model from when we talk about neuroscience is the computer, right? So we talk about kind of the active part of the brain and the dormant and the RAM and all this kind of stuff. But now there seems to be this shift towards talking about the body in terms of materiality and material properties. So we talk about the plasticity yeah. of brains. And that switch, I think, is really interesting in the way that, you know... Um, broader tropes are coming into understanding ourselves through material science. Yeah. So, I mean, I, there is, um, 
the, the, the feature of plasticity that they refer to, I believe, I don't, I'm not sure, but I, I think, is uh, that, that plasticity involves memory. In other words, the, the, if, if I take a plastic material, um, its, its shape depends on its history, right? It depends on what's been done to it in the past because, remember, plasticity is a permanent deformation in response to a force. So uh, its shape depends on what's been done to it in the past. And it, in neuroscience, as far as I understand, um, when they talk about uh, synaptic plasticity, uh, I don't think I know what a synapse is, but, but let's uh, pretend I do. So... Um, <laughs> They're talking about the fact that, that in response to stimuli, the human brain uh, changes and changes in a way that's, that's, that's permanent in some way. So if, if, you have a, if, if you have some sort of traumatic experience, and I hope you don't, but if, if you did, then, then it would, uh, and it causes a memory that, that, that stays with you for a very, very long time. Um, then it permanently changes your brain structure. Yeah, it, that, this is. I think they often find that with children who have had very tough upbringings, in that they have their brains are fundamentally differently structured because of that notion of plasticity. But what I th also thought that it might offer us is a, a kind of endless um, ability to have our brains become plastic for us as human beings to constantly think we're not fixed in a certain type of position or identity. That our brains are still plastic and we can still be shaped and molded yeah. you know even as we hit our 30s and 40s hopefully yeah yeah so i <laughs> so i think that the idea of of um plasticity in the in the brain i gave an extreme example but even if you know there's a certain there's a certain track that brings you back to your your, your school days or something like that that's it's and and all memories i think the theory is that this is um a consequence of of plasticity in the mind Thank you very much, Paul. You're very welcome. We're going to play our first track now um, and a rather apt song, Fake, fake Plastic Trees. And this is the dub tribute to Radiohead. was Fake Plastic Trees, as played by Dub Tribute to Radiohead. You're listening to Paperweight Radio, Explorations in Visual and Material Culture on Resonance 104.4 FM with Juliet Christensen. We are tweeting through at Paperweight News and we use the hashtag Paperweight Radio. And our second guest for today is our returning guest, Matt Lodder. As regular listeners know, Matt is a lecturer in art history at the University of Essex and his research is principally concerned with the history of Western tattooing and the artistic status of body art and body modification practices and his first book which you have to look out for is tattoo and art history with ib taurus and that should come out when next year 
Yeah, December. December. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm aiming for. Hello. Hi, Julia. Uh, I thought you'd be an ideal person to come in for today's show on plastic because your work on body modification and cosmetic surgery and really speaks to us about kind of plastic and the body and artificiality. And so to start off with, um, cosmetic surgery is uh, one of the most contentious issues in contemporary culture. And it's often seen as some kind of ultimate result of a kind of capitalist schizophrenic culture that demands higher and higher standards of beauty um, of seemingly natural physical beauty through greater slicing and dicing so there's uh, Naomi Wolf calls it the surgical age is that right yeah sure so I'm really interested that we've been talking about metaphors already so metaphors of plasticity um, I'm kind of interested in metaphors of art right so plastic surgeons who call themselves artists and or artisans or, well, art, you'll see a lot of plastic surgeons talking about um, themselves as artists which is kind of problematic in lots of interesting ways um, but you're right so there's there's this kind of um, contention right about which Naomi Wolf basically and the kind of second wave feminists in general see plastic surgery as this um, you know assault on women really fundamentally um, and then the kind of flip side of that actually which also comes out of a feminist discourse um says that plastic surgery is a way for um, women to kind of assert their own identities and take control of their bodies and there's some kind of metaphor of self-control there so what um, I've written about and what I'm interested in is how we kind of square that circle right how we deal with plastic surgery as a process um, whilst considering both of those two completely diametrically opposing viewpoints and those are quite two quite extreme viewpoints and that's probably where the contention comes in you know like the ownership of women's bodies who owns it who makes decisions about it and where do those decision processes come in and I note that already we're talking about women even though there's been a huge increase in plastic surgery that men are having over the last five years yeah well the, the, that's one of the things that interests me because the plastics the, the kind of very um, the sort of second wave stuff Naomi Wolf in particular in Beauty Myth in the early 90s it is really all about women um, but you know it, it becomes true you know her, her sort of fears that you know this is just a, an assault on women are kind of disproven in a way in what happened what's happened in the last 25 years which is that yeah more and more guys are getting plastic surgery and so you know how do we how do we work out a way of thinking about this this practice right which is a very kind of interesting and then growing and popular and complex set of procedures with two very different um, discourses how do we sort of work out what's going on there especially actually by taking you know into account all the rhetoric around it of of of, of art and and beauty uh in 2009 apex art a small non-profit gallery in new york it held a show called i am art an expression of the visual and artistic process of of plastic surgery i like the kind of declarative sentiment that was in there what was the curatorial argument in producing such a show around plastic surgery in an art gallery so i think this is really interesting because i think it's a way that we can solve this this dichotomy right between between the two sides of the pro or anti-plastic surgery argument and the apex art show is really interesting because it's curated by a plastic surgeon a guy called anthony burtlett and he sort of not only presents himself and his colleagues as an artist um and the rhetoric of the show is very interesting he talks about himself as kind of you know michelangelo where michelangelo would carve beauty out of stone he carved beauty out of flesh um uh, but at the same time, what's really interesting about that is the title of the show, I Am Art, is not about, it's not about necessarily just about him as an, as, a, as an artist. It's about the human body, the body of his patients as art objects. And that's, I mean, a very contentious and very difficult thing to take seriously. Um, Especially in terms of ownership and agency. Yeah, absolutely. Because it does kind of completely reduce the, I mean, in, in one respect, it does seem to 
make the bodies inert that yeah, he's it operating se- on. It seems to prove the kind of negative argument, and lots of people I talk to about this when I present this in lectures sort of say, well, that sort of proves in a way that plastic surgery is an oppressive procedure, that it kind of takes advantage of, of women's bodies, and most of the people in the Burtlett show were women. Um, and so... In a way, on, on one hand, it sort of proves his argument. On the other hand, what I want to say about that is actually, and actually, when I, when I sort of show to people, show people this or tell people about this show, they say, "Well, he's not an artist, you know. He's just pretending to be one. He's just claiming to be one." Um, what I want to say is, maybe we can take him seriously as an artist, and if we do so, we can solve this problem about um, whether plastic surgery is a, is, a, is a good thing or a bad thing, and whether it's you know pro or anti women. Um, and I think the way we do that is by saying, okay, if you're an artist, let's have a, let's have a look at what your art's like. <laughs> and my kind of conclusion, to cut a very long story short, is that if he is an artist, he's not a very good one. Right. right. <laughs> Damning. Like, yeah, I'd like to say he's not. You art- can be an artist. You're just at the bottom of the heap. Exactly. I don't think he's very. In- he's not very interesting. He's derivative. Um, the ethical kind of frameworks in which he's working are very problematic. He's just not a very good artist. And I think in by by. twisting this argument around and saying you you know okay what's wrong with what you're doing it's derivative it is you know it's um hegemonic in lots of ways it's kind of enforcing a top-down beauty standard you can kind of say on one hand i agree with um with with the kind of wolfian critique of plastic surgery right yeah but on the other um but but at the same time by saying okay you are an artist Let's not damn the process. What can we do instead? Are there ways in which the process of plastic surgery, the technologies, can be used to better, more interesting, more productive ends? And it, and by that, by doing that, by thinking about it in that way, I think you can kind of solve the problem and say there's lots wrong with plastic surgery, but the people who get it aren't idiots, right? It's the it's the it's the practice that's the problem. I think, if memory serves correct, when I was looking at the the I Am Art show, I was quite surprised by the kind of formalism of the portraits that he was showing because they looked like the lookbook from that he would show to potential clients there was no there was no they looked incredibly standard in a in a very banal way the yeah, kind of profile shot is that right there were the profile shots and the face so they would look like kind of identity cards like betty on you know police cards from the late 19th century yeah well, what's interesting about the show is obviously because it claims to be about the people and about their bodies the kind of documentation that actually got showed in the exhibition which was video photography and a couple of sculptures um are sort of in a way not really what the show is about they're sort of the you know they're sort of the behind the scenes shots in a way so the art is actually the performance of the of surgery the, well, rather no, the art, than... The art is the, it's the human bodies in the world, according to that kind of rhetoric of the show. Um, but you're right, it, the, the, the photography is so kind of generic, and this is kind of partly why I want to say he's not a very interesting artist. And actually, it's quite cynical, because if you look at before and after pictures of plastic surgery, the before ones, the people in them, usually women again, are they have don't have any makeup on, their hair's not very done, they look very sad, they're generally frowning, they're very harsh lighting. And then the kind of after photos, they're smiling, they've got Vaseline makeup on. on the lens. Yeah, <laughs> right? And so it's really, it's really, really cynical. It's really cynical. And I think it, do, you know, it doesn't communicate a very um, positive story about the ethics of, of, of plastic surgery practitioners. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it tells us very much about the people who get plastic surgery, which is the you know, kind of Wolfian critique that everyone who does do so is a victim. I don't believe that. There are contemporary artists who work within the scope of c- cosmetic surgery. And the, the one that you've written about, and I know others have written about, is Orlan. Yeah. Uh, who during ni- between 1990 and 1993 made a series of performances. Do you want to speak briefly about her work yeah, so to do with co- cosmetic surgery? You can't really talk about plastic surgery and art without talking about Orlan. Um, 
and again, she's been very contentious. Some some feminist critique critics of her work say she's very sort of damaging and anti-feminist, and some feminists sort of you know, praise her for being a you know the perfect visible critique of beauty capitalism. What she did um, for a, a, seri- a series of works is actually perform plastic surgery in a gallery. So she got um, Jean-Paul Gaultier to design the costumes, and she did poetry readings um, and kind of um, philosophy readings and conducted interviews while undergoing plastic surgery in art galleries. So she sort of staged this process of, of, of surgery as an artistic kind of statement. Um, her goal, she said, was to kind of rearrange her face so it looked like the kind of, you know, she was building a perfect face from the perfect faces of art history. So she had um, bits of her face were from the Mona Lisa and bits from uh, Botticelli's Venus and bits from... Um, the uh, canon. Yeah. Bits she from, chose the canon. She chose the canon, right? Um, and obviously what, was, what ended up was really this kind of strange, grotesque face, which is very... So she's got big bulges in her forehead, um, sort of mimicking the Mona Lisa's forehead, but it looks very strange in real life. What I think is really interesting about Orland's work and something which not a lot of critics have picked up on is... You know, she gets read as a performance artist. Her work's happening as a, a, a timed performance. People undergo, you know, her, while she's undergoing surgery. What really interests me about Orlan um, is when she has, she has to go home. You know, when the performance is finished and all the audiences have gone home and the camera's turned off, and by all sort of art historical accounts, the performance is finished. She's got to get on the bus. You know, and she looks weird. And in a way, that sort of proves about that right in a way that there's something artistically interesting materially interesting you know uh, ob- even in terms of it's kind of objects that's interesting about her body people will look at it and they will see the kind of way it's been produced the kind of things which we as art historians material culture historians are used to thinking about objects i think we can use that rhetoric to talk about bodies but doing that um isn't as reductive as it might seem because i think it gives us an insight into yeah. If anything that anyone writes about Orland's um, work is true, if it does sort of give us a kind of new insight on on the brutality of the beauty industry, for example, um, that's more true. Yeah, you know, when she's when she's sort of sitting there next, next to you, you on next bus. to you on the bus, right, with her very strange, weird face. So I think so. This 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 rhetoric of of art of artistic practice and thinking about the body as an art form, um, rather than kind of damning the whole practice, I think liberate liberates it. You've chosen a rather interesting song for us today. Do you want to introduce it briefly? Yeah, well, so I thought this was the perfect song to go with it. It's um, it's a, a piece called California Rhinoplasty from an album from 2000 called A, a Chance to Cut is a Chance to Cure by uh, a band called Matmos. And it's entirely composed of samples uh, recorded during plastic surgery operations uh, augmented with a um, nose flute. Thank you. Thank you.
That was California Rhinoplasty by Matt Moss, chosen by Matt Lodder. You're listening to Paperweight Radio, Explorations in Visual and Material Culture on Resonance 104.4 FM with Juliet Christensen. And this is a show in which we explore through conversation with artists and architects, curators and craftspeople, designers, historians and theorists, and today, a scientist. Contemporary research into and with images and objects. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter through at Paperweight News and we use the hashtag Paperweight Radio. Our third guests today are the sociologists Ian Woodward and Dominic Bartmansky. Ian is Associate Professor in the School of Humanities at Griffith University, Australia, where he's also Deputy Director of the Griffith Centre for Cultural Research. His research includes objects and, and material cultures, as well as tastes and aesthetics and notions of the cosmopolitan. Dominic is a postdoctoral research fellow at the sociology department in the Czech Republic and he completed his PhD at Yale on iconicity and revolution. They joined me earlier this week from Tokyo where they were at a conference to discuss their forthcoming book, Vinyl, the Analogue Record in the Digital Age, which will be published by Bloomsbury in December this year. So in your article, the supposed death of vinyl came with the advent of the CD in 1983, and that saw vinyl's share of the US market fall from 40% to 1%. But recently, there's been this resurgence that you've been arguing for, so sales of 15 million between 2008 and 2012. So what I wanted to ask as a first question is, how does this resurgence point not towards a kind of technical reversion or a move backwards, but rather to some kind of re-articulation of vinyl as a cultural object? Yeah, I mean, the first part of that is, or the main part of it really, is that it, that it, the situation uh, now is very different when, when the vinyl started to experience this rapid drop in sales um, when the CD was introduced because um, at that stage, of course, there was no... Uh, there was no purely sort of digital engagement. And the rearticulation of vinyl these days is very much in reaction to or in, uh, in counter to um, digitalization of culture and, and digitalization of music listening as well. Or we could even say virtualization. Virtualization. Mm, because CD was the digital medium, but it was still physical. Right. Whereas files are somehow immaterial. Yeah. Um, so the return to vinyl can be rearticulated or conceptualized as um, appreciation for the actual object and the physical form. Yeah. One thing I was really interested in in your work was was how the changing status of the DJ in the 1990s and the birth of the prosumer in the 2000s contributed to this rearticulation. Do you see these moments as kind of very key figures in this rebirth of vinyl, as we might call it? Yeah, I think so because these were the people that we, throughout our research too, uh, in terms of the people we've talked to and the scenes we've participated in, what we've discovered was that uh, this group of people broadly were the ones who, in the last couple of decades, who kept vinyl alive, but not just kept it alive, kept it cool and kept it underground and kept it with an indie ethic. And this has also been really important. But part and parcel of it as well is. Um, this uh, this um, sharing, this playing with this um, re redesigning sort of global sounds, and um, this is certainly a part of it. Might yeah, add yeah. to that. Yeah, absolutely. And so this move, I think, it's really interesting. You call the DJs uh, having been uh, assumed to be sort of pariahs, and now they have this iconic status, and with it, they seem to have pulled vinyl up with them. Is that is that an accurate description? Do you think? 
Well, yeah, to, to a certain extent, we believe that, that, that it is, especially in the 90s, DJs emerged as artists in their own right. And people would say that the turntable is an instrument, not yeah. just a player. Um, so, yeah, it, it involved skill and certain cultural understanding to be a good DJ. And, of course, um, vinyl record was the fundamental basic tool yeah. uh, for DJs. And what is very important, that, that coincided with the introduction of uh, digital files. So, basically, at that point, um, yeah, you could imagine that um, physical, physical format is dispensable. Is not uh, necessary. Is too expensive uh, to produce. Unwieldy. Uh, yeah, cumbersome, and yep. so on and so forth. But DJs never gave up on the format. Uh, on the contrary, it was uh, fundamental to their craft and their art. And because, uh, as Ian said, they emerged as cool figures. To a certain extent, we might claim that they endowed vinyl with a certain kind of cool aura. Yeah, so to some extent you might see that this aura, this aura of coolness associated with vinyl through, through that period when vinyl was not so popular and people were dispensing with it, that coolness, that aura has now been somewhat transferred to different cultural realms or it's in the process of shifting. I think this is interesting that it's, uh, that it's now becoming a little bit more widespread and a little bit more popular and the other aspect of, uh, of what Dominic was just talking about is that DJs were diggers. DJs were seen as the people who had this sort of special access, had the commitment, had the expertise, had the knowledge to be able to source um, global sounds, rare sounds. People were, people were very aware that there was this culture of diggers and uh, people perhaps became to realize, realize that um, this group of uh, music enthusiasts were, um, through their vinyl collecting, through their vinyl searches, they were accessing a whole lot of cool music. Uh, and this has spread, this has spread, I think, this, this culture of, of listening to global sounds, for example. And I think what is important, one important aspect is that DJs are musical curators. Right. Um, they choose music for other people. And they collect music. And what is special about vinyl as an actual object is that it is collectible thing, whereas you can't really collect files, or at least the meaning of uh, a collection shifts or changes. So a lot of people that we interviewed, um, some of them uh, pretty high-profile DJs, would emphasize that. And they would say, yeah, we can't imagine really collecting files. It doesn't really count. What counts is having a vinyl collection. Yeah. Someone can show you their 10,000 files, their 20,000 files. It's not that impressive at all. In fact, it just points, points to perhaps a lack of, uh, lack of sort of ability to curate one's collection. Uh, whereas a collection of vinyl, which is smaller but, but more heavily curated, has a different cultural meaning. I'm really interested in this term of diggers as well, because to me that indicates some kind of uh, archaeological process that they're Absolutely. going through culture and kind of uh, almost like in a Foucauldian sense of, of picking through the past and pulling it right up. Is this something exactly, that you were conscious of? Yeah, that's exactly how we conceptualise it in the book. Of course, as, uh, there is this archaeological sort of metaphor. People go on expeditions 
Pick your hands get dirty because of dealing with the, and filtering through all the old stock. Uh, it's backbreaking or at least footbreaking sort of work as well. You have to navigate the city. You have to stand up while you're doing it. it involves it's a, there's a certain physicality to it. So in that sense, um, yeah, it's very much akin to a type of archaeology. And yeah, digging is about um, searching through and browsing through uh, secondhand stocks, right? So yeah. again, it's not about you know going on one website and choosing the new stuff or whatever pops up. It's about uh, building your historical knowledge, right? In order to be effective, good digger, you have to know what happened in the past. You have to have knowledge about tradition. And then, of course, the importance of secondhand stores uh, um, is is something crucial to our understanding of of vinyl and what what digging is. And of course, as you said, in this sense, also digging is an archaeological cultural practice and, and there's mythological diggers as well um the culture of, of vinyl buyers uh, know full well that they're, they're these sort of mythical diggers and mythical diggers sometimes become mythical djs as well and you know if you search the internet you'll find a whole lot of stories which sort of reproduce the archaeological myths of, of digging and they're based around these iconic diggers like madlib madlib dj shadow uh, dj shadow uh Charles peterson Another exactly. another argument that you make in your article, which I thought was really interesting, is that we should consider vinyl not as status signaling commodities, but rather, and we've touched on this during this conversation, aura-laden objects as kind of ways of telling stories and with the archaeological and finding history again. So what do you think this reconsideration of vinyl as as an object, maybe with a capital O, um, achieves in thinking through vinyl's increased sales? Hmm. It's a little bit of everything. I, I, I think I wouldn't exclude entirely this, and we don't do it actually. And this aspect of um, status signaling—it's—it's. It's, I think it's, or it can be part of it, depending on the setting, depending on the context. That's one of the things that we emphasize in the book that actually meanings of vinyl shift at least to a certain extent depending on where you find them uh, in what country in what city uh, it's also scene specific let's say techno and house scene and those vinyl with a little bit different meaning than let's say um, jazz scene or soul scene and, and so on but certainly the, the the importance of vinyl as an object in a in a in a broader sense and that um, you know carries certain cultural narratives with it um, is is at least as yeah, definitely. And the object of it, okay, the, the, in, as Dominic has explained, in, in some scenes, in some listening communities for some consumers or buyers, yeah, there can be an aspect of distinction to it. There certainly is, even with digging, for example. Um, but but the thing that unites it is the is the objectness of the thing and the fact that it can be held, it can be handled, it can be stored, it can be cared for. So uh, this objectness of it is is the crucial thing, I guess. Tactility. Um, the tactility. I think this is something that we very much wanted to emphasize uh, emphasize in the book that um, you know people would often say that the analog sound is better, which is actually not not true. Uh, it's it's not necessarily better. It's Difference. We can appreciate the difference that analog medium introduces in terms of the, um, the audio experience, but there is also the whole uh, sphere of haptics. It's it's a tactile object, and the contact with this concrete tactile um, product is also very important. That's why you uh, you also see people saying, "Oh, I like how my collection looks as a whole on my shelves." Right? 
this is again a, a certain kind of a visual aspect to it. So there's this mesmerizing quality of a revolving vinyl on the turntable, but then there's also this visual aspect of the collection in your room, just like uh, your book collection. And these these dimensions simply do not exist when we are talking uh, digital files. No, and you can see the music in the grooves as well when you talk to people who are violin, vinyl enthusiasts and people who at least um, enjoy buying or listening to vinyl. There's a sense in which um, you know they can identify the structure. Of a track they can identify the sound in the shape of the groove or the shape of the record at least you can say that the surface of vinyl is a vib- musical vibration congealed you actually see that yes it doesn't exist yeah, uh, it's a uh, physical vi- thing virtual file um, sort of makes music invisible it's reduced to the to the yeah. audio signal and so this is i mean in, so in our conversations with with uh, either music buyers, but more importantly, um, music producers, artists, and so on, this this was a really important dimension of um, of their arguments, their rationales for for liking and, and um, going back to vinyl. Yes. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Ian. Thank you, Dominic. That was thank Ian. You. Thank you. That was Ian Woodward and Dominic Bartmansky discussing their forthcoming book, Vinyl, The Analogue Record in the Digital Age. As their musical choice, they have chosen Something Up and Down by F. Demin. Thank you. 
track was Something Up and Down by F. Demin, chosen by Ian Woodward and Dominic Bartmanski. You are listening to Paperweight Radio, explorations in visual material culture on Resonance 104.4 FM with Juliet Christensen. And our final guest today is Emily Chivers Joachim. Emily is Assistant Professor in Communication Arts at Algonay College, and her research is focused on youth subcultures, identity and media. She joined me earlier this week to discuss her book, This Is How I Think, Skate Life, Corresponding Cultures and White Masculinities, an ethnographic study of skateboarders examining how they use skateboard culture to develop critiques of dominant ideas around white male adolescence. So the first question I wanted to ask you is that your work builds on the work of Ian Borden and Ocean Howe, who have argued that skateboarders rework city space as a site of pleasure rather than as a machine of commerce, which also then produces surplus value in their reclamation of of the city space. And so what I wanted to ask you, first of all, what are the ways in which skateboarders are able to do this? Oh, okay. So, well, I think that um, skateboarders bring this energy to space, right? And so from a skateboarder's point of view, what they're doing is reimagining the way that space is used. It's no longer, um, the city becomes something that is no longer simply used for commerce, right? You're not simply going there to buy something. And you're not really going there from a skateboarder's point of view to produce anything of value for any anyone else, really, right? You're doing what... Um, brings you joy, brings you a sense of peace, brings you a sense of energy. Um, And so it's all about how can I use the space for myself? And they really see themselves um, in a relationship of antagonism with the powers that be in city spaces, right? Um, the, The most sympathetic municipalities are creating skate parks to get skateboarders out of public space. Um, They regard skateboarders as a nuisance um, who can bring, you know, can threaten pedestrians who are there for business and commerce. But on the other hand, um, you can also see skateboarders as, like I said at the beginning, bringing this energy, bringing a kind of hip cachet to city space as well. Um, and, And sort of remaking it as a creative space. So as creativity, independence, um, and kind of self-expression become values that we more and more and more give a lot of credence to, then skateboarders enact that for cities. Pushing this idea of space forward, what what kind of space does the culture around skateboarding create in terms of young men's identity politics? Right. Well, I, and so that's really interesting because it creates a space that is, is, is first of all, self-enclosed, right? So young men who don't see themselves fitting in any other space, right, who position themselves in opposition to jocks, for example, who find themselves pushed out of um, football culture or who don't necessarily feel that they fit in at school or don't necessarily feel that they fit in other places, come to the space of skateboarders, whether it's in skate shops or in skate parks or at the local sort of corner where everybody's skating at the local skate spot. Um, And they report that they can feel like themselves there, that they can express themselves and not feel 
not feel threatened except for by the adults around them, right? So it's a self-enclosed space for young men. And in, in, in respect to other identity positions, I know your work concentrates on young men, but how does skate culture position itself with respect to other identities? For example, what kind of space does skate culture construct for young women? This is something that's really been contested a lot. What young skateboarders, young male skateboarders will tell you is there's space here for anyone. Right. And and when they say anyone, the way they describe it is through culture. You can um, listen to any type of music you want to. You can wear any types of clothes you want to. There's room here for women. There's room here for men. Um, Anybody who wants to skateboard can come. Um, But that's not really on the ground. That's not what's happening. There's lots of masculine boasting that's happening. Um, women who are skateboarding are subjected to a much higher bar in terms of entry. So women who want to skateboard are regarded initially almost always as posers, right? Um, as inauthentic, as likely wanting to get into skateboard and or into skateboarding in order to um, get a boyfriend or to appear cool um, or any number, other number of reasons that are deemed inauthentic. Um, yeah, that so concept first, of inauthenticity is really interesting in regard to skateboarding culture, I think. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's, I think, the thing that, that's, that's the boundary that gets policed all the time. And because skateboarders are so concerned with individuality, they also have to work really hard to say, well, you can be whoever you want, but you also have to stay within this really tightly circumscribed line um, that tells us who is authentic and who isn't. So, so women are just sort of automatically inauthentic. As much as skateboarders will protest that claim, um, that's the reality on the ground. So they're skate buddies, right? They're just there to watch. They're not really there. Your research into into media culture surrounding skateboarders exposes a really interesting tension within the subculture in that it is once it's countercultural, but also that skate culture is a recognized trope of mass media to signal the countercultural. How do skateboarders navigate their kind of media verse and are able to construct something authentic within that? Yeah, so this is why I introduced the term corresponding cultures in my work. I think that skateboarders are always in tension with uh, mainstream media and with more niche media um, that is directed directly at skateboarders. Um, So at one and the same time, what we see is that mainstream media is drawing on the niche skateboarding media first, right? So a lot of the stuff that was on um, MTV uh five, ten years ago came directly from the videos that skateboarders were watching. So Bam Margera was um a highly regarded skateboarder within skate culture before he became Bam Margera of Evil Bam. Um there's a whole host of videos from Big Brother Skate magazine that um, then moved into the Jackass movies and so on. So skateboarders can see this relationship between the media that they think of as authentic to them, right? This is our media. It's directed at us. This is this constitutes who we are. 
versus their media, which is directed at, at, at the more general public, but still comes from us and seems to represent something of who we are, but maybe in a way that we're not necessarily so happy about, right? Um, so Tony Hawk is hugely con- contested among skateboarders. Some people love him, right? And part of the reason that they love him is he's an amazing skateboarder, right? He's done, uh, you know, far bigger tricks than most skateboarders have done. He's um, been a, a kind of ambassador um, for the practice or the sport, whatever you want to call it. Um, but at the same time, others, some skateboarders kind of see him as a sellout who at this point is only in it for the money. So there's always these lines. The skateboarders are constructing, um, tearing down, reenacting, um, and, and towing the line, crossing over the line between wh- which media is for us and which media is simply about us and using us to sell something else. Skateboarding has now been positioned as a kind of extreme sport alongside things like BMXing and uh, mountain biking and windsurfing. When it's positioned as an extreme sport, is there a way in which skate culture has been at all diluted in some way by being sort of homogenized within the group of other activities or has it simply made it much sharper in its understanding of itself as a culture? You know, I guess I'm sort of hesitant to say, is it sharper or is it more diluted? I think that all of this is always a discursive construct, right? It's always being built up among the ranks. Um, in, a, in, in, in different ways. I think that skateboarding has gone through, since its emergence in the 50s, it's gone through a number of peaks and valleys in terms of mainstream success. And so these conversations have been happening, um, you know, for 60 years at this point. And I think skateboarders, whether they know it or not, are part of that history where skateboarding is, is it going to be the next is it going to be the next club or is this something that just sort of punk rebels do? Um, and, and the kind of notorious um, argument between the skateboard magazine Thrasher and Transworld Skateboarding was just was exactly about that, right? Are we mainstream or are we not? So I think this is just, I mean, honestly, I don't think it's, I don't think there's a way in which skateboarding gets sharpened except to say that it always is going to be right on that boundary that was uh, Emily Chivers talking about skateboard culture and with that we come to the end of this episode you've been listening to Paperweight Radio Explorations in Visual and Material Culture with Juliet Christensen on Resonance 104.4 FM with thanks to today's guests Paul, Matt, Ian, Dominic and Emily we now play Freak Scene by Dinosaur Jr. are listening to Resonance FM 104.4 London. 
Resonans FM on of four point four London's first radio art station. <laughs> 